Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. But it's definitely not a buzzy news story anymore. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. Number one is that Facebook scandal has become so commonplace to the fact to the, to the point that it's now kind of boring. You know, the one thing that people said after all these revelations came out, we saw all the internal documents, all the internal conversations. People were just kind of like, okay, well, we knew that. And, you know, the reason was because, you know, we've had this reporting on this and scandal after scandal, you know, one after the other. And basically, there's no bad thing you could tell us about Facebook anymore that would really make us pay attention for more than a day or two. We have an amazing episode for everybody. It is with Alex Kantrowitz, our friend over from the Big Technology Newsletter. Why? Because we had to react to the news of Twitter. I know it might seem like slightly old news at this point, even though it's only been less than a week, but Jack is out, Parag Agarwal is in, new policies are being announced. What the hell does it all mean for the future of the internet, journalism, I mean, the way that we all discourse with one another online? There's a lot that we get into today, Marshall. Yeah, the other thing we covered really, aside from a conversation around the future of the internet, the usual stuff we all know you enjoy, was Frances Haugen. She mm-hmm. testified again. This is the Facebook whistleblower. And in Alex's reporting and some tweets he put out, he was acknowledging and just referencing the fact that that coverage and that testimony had basically zero impact. When if you look at how big of a story the Facebook whistleblowing was supposed to be in August, the fact that it's making no impact whatsoever says a lot about the space, says a lot about how this issue is now being much more partisan. Um, people were talking about when they were covering the issue of how this time when she testified, Republicans were much, much more aggressive towards her because it turns out that whether you like her or not, a lot of the points she's advancing, especially the ones outside of the Instagram research with young girls, that's that one's pretty nonpartisan. You could take it in another direction. But a lot of the stuff was more focused on content moderation. Those are obviously points that align more with like what the Democratic Party wants. So this was just another good opportunity for us to once again hit everyone over the head with the idea that there is no actual bipartisan consensus on tech. And if you act like there is, you're going to have a really, really really bad time. Dan Crenshaw said it himself. Dems want one thing. Ours want one thing. Probably going to have to pick a side if this is this you care about. So uh, you're going to get a lot of good analysis. We have some debates, some discussion and more about how the future is, whether tech can even be regulated and what that all looks like. I think you'll enjoy it. And just, of course, have to shout out a couple of things. It's the holiday season. So our bookshop is moving books. It's actually really exciting. Sagar, homework for the two of us. We need to put together our 10 books of the year. We really enjoyed Peace. People really liked that, moved a lot of copies last week. So go to the bookshop, check out Alex's book, check out other authors' books, but we will also put together our own list. Number two, check out our Substack going out on Thursdays as well. Finally, thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting the show. Let's get into the episode. Alex Kantoritz, good friend of the show. Welcome back to The Realignment. Thank you. It's great to be back and congrats to you both on an amazing 2021. I've been binging the show and uh, I think it's your best year yet. And uh, bravo. Means a lot, dude. Thank you. 
what's funny is it's year three for us. So basically, if every year isn't the best year yet for all of us in any context, it's kind of a real devastating reality here. But uh, speaking of good years, you've done an amazing job with reporting and just telling the broader story of tech. So let's start with the most newsily obvious implication bit here. Let's talk about Jack Dorsey and Twitter. Obviously, this is airing on Tuesday, so we're a little behind the news cycle here. But What's the state of play? Like, what happened? Why did this matter? And let's get your broad thoughts on what this means going forward. It's it's actually uh, kind of fascinating because you never think that Jack would leave Twitter voluntarily. The man obviously loved being the CEO of Twitter. Um, so it, it's it's been clear that he's been fairly withdrawn, though, uh, over the past year. And I think there might be a few reasons to that, um, which have been broadly discussed. And I think they're fairly accurate. Uh, the first is that he got so attracted to Bitcoin um, and became obsessed with it and couldn't even think about anything else. Um, and the second is that he had activist shareholders. Elliott Management came in, basically called for his removal um, and set this thing in motion uh, about a year ago. And so you add those things together, something new that he was obsessed about, uh, shareholders that want him out. And my reporting, you know, uh, had me uh, understand that Jack was spending less than 10% of his time at Twitter. He's basically, you know, a ghost there. I had people tell me that he wasn't, you know, even participating in his own Slack channel where people asked him questions where he used to be, you know, pretty active. Uh, and and so it all culminated with him deciding to step down. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty, it's going to be pretty interesting to see Twitter without Jack. Um it's it's surprising, um, although not 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 that shocking, uh, given everything that had been building, you know, for the past let's, couple of years. Let's disaggregate this a little bit, because um, Twitter can be a very emotional conversation for people. Let's mm-hmm. talk about Twitter as a business. What was the case for removing Jack as a CEO of Twitter from a purely business perspective? As in, why did Elliott Management and a lot of other people want Jack to go? Why did they not think that he was innovating on the product? leadership, all of that. And then we'll get into the more political implications. The Elliott management move to me has been one of the more confounding parts of this whole thing. Um, I I know Twitter has underperformed the S&P 500 since Jack has taken over, but the context within which he took over was that Twitter was a mess. The business was going nowhere. Um, It was stagnating users. And he made a lot of bold moves in order to bring it back from the brink of irrelevance. Uh, talk about what happened underneath him. Uh, the algorithm, you know, it was applied to the feed underneath Jack. The, you know, the resumption of uh, daily active user growth happened under him as a CEO after it had declined. By the way, before Twitter, there was there was rarely, I think, if ever, a large consumer social media company that started to grow users after losing them, and Twitter became the first. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that like expanding tweets from 140 characters to 280 was another big important move that Jack made that brought value to the service. I think you saw the depth of conversation expand uh, under that. I think he has done some bold experiments, um, for instance, like asking people whether they want to read before they retweet something, click the link before you spread it. So that's been good. Um, and so for Elliot to come in after he, you know, you know, uh, came in and made all these changes from the very beginning. He said, we're going to question all the fundamentals. It used to be you could never touch that feed with an algorithm. It used to be that you could never think about changing the character count. And he blew that stuff up. And I think overall had Twitter Twitter headed in a good direction. 
So coming as an activist investor and say he's done a poor job with the business to me, uh, you know, was was um, something that you might do if you were a pure a pure numbers person uh, and didn't have a real understanding of how Twitter the business worked. Can we get to the obvious bit here, and this is where I'll do my best Scott Galloway impression. You just said he was spending ten percent of his time. And at best, it was going to be spending 50% of his time. So isn't there just this basic argument that everything you're describing were some really good 2015, Mm -hmm. 2016, 2017 calls, but by just late 2020, when it came to the need to compete with Clubhouse, RIP, when it came to Mm -hmm. the need to actually launch Twitter Blue, it was the activist investing that actually drove those business side, how do we get to the next stage part of it? What do you think about that part? So I think that the activist investor came in and that did light a fire under Twitter's product organization, right? So um, it did spark Twitter spaces, which essentially put Clubhouse out of business. It did spark Twitter Blue, which is now aligning Twitter user interest with product interest because we're not paying for it. Um, That's the premium subscription. So I I think that, you know, the activist investor did spark some good things, no doubt about it. Uh, Twitter usually moves at a glacial pace. Um, and, um, but I also think it ground Jack Dorsey's, you know, interest in being there into the ground. And so, um, you know, because they came in sort of like a wrecking ball and said, get out of here. And ultimately it might've been, you know, almost too successful for its own good, where it did push, you know, this product movement, um, but also got Jack out of the business again. Like, I don't know. I happen to think Jack was pretty good at doing the job. Um, Mm. And so, you know, ultimately he obviously either lost interest or was told he needed to leave. Um, and so that's why he's no longer CEO of Twitter. Um, it was very strange from, from Twitter. You know, Twitter usually um, has these long deliberative, you know, exit periods for its CEO. <laughs> Jack was just like, I'm out of here. And Prague's the new CEO. We're done. Um, you know, so it, it, it's all, it all happened, uh, you know, pretty quickly. Um, it's interesting but, oh, too. Yeah, Alex, you know, I, I, I was saying this and you and I were talking, all three of us probably were talking mm-hmm. about this, is, you know, when they named an engineer to the, you know, the former CTO to the position, I was kind of blown away and I was talking, you know, with you and with Marshall because I don't see any engineering problems that Twitter has. Um, and I can already see the SV guys rolling their heads. But as you said, I mean, rolling out Twitter blue is like not that hard. You know, a mm-hmm. pretty basic MBA could you know, order an engineer and be like, build a subscription product. Okay. Um, Twitter spaces, same thing. I mean, social audio, all of that. You just have to link it to the uh, plat- to your actual Twitter account, Revu, the newsletter business. All of that actually did happen under Jack. Now, you could make the case then that the activists are the ones who lit the fire. But once again, like these are not major innovations that need to happen. They have a multi-billion dollar business because they have a shitload of people on their platform and they basically just need to keep them there. Not that difficult. Um, But it seems to me that by choosing an engineer, they are really not reckoning with the fact that the biggest company decisions that they're going to have to make in the next, what, three to four years are all political. I mean, his very first day, Parag Agarwal, green lights, one of the dumbest policies that I've seen yet um, Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, private people, you know, obviously influenced by like an activist class. He's going to have to decide whether Trump comes back or not in 2023 if he decides to run for president. He is going to have to decide the bar for election claims and stuff both in 2022 and in 2024. In other words, like, all of the major questions that he's going to face have nothing to do with engineering. I'm curious 
if am I the only person who thinks this? What was the mindset behind uh, choosing somebody like this? And what are the pitfalls in the future? And quick thing, Alex, can you yeah. explain what the private photo decision was for folks? Oh, like, yeah. What was that there for? What was that for, for first? Like, yeah. What was that decision? And then get into Sagar's question there. Yeah, I think we should talk about that first because it really gets into the nature of how Twitter operates as a business. So there was a policy that Twitter released this week, and basically in day one of Prague Agarwal's uh, tenure as CEO, that says if you post a photo of a private individual or video of a private individual that's against Twitter's rules, and they'll take it down if they complain. Um, this is crazy uh, because, you know, some of the most newsworthy stuff on Twitter uh, yes. is of private individuals. And now Twitter did, uh, you know, make a couple of caveats. So I have the Twitter safety tweets up here. Um, so they say context matters. Our existing private information policy includes many exceptions in order to enable robust reporting on newsworthy events and conversations that are in the public interest, which essentially says we're going to basically turn this over arbitrarily to our content moderators yep. who are going to take it on a case by case basis and we'll have no consistency you know, on the policy. It's an absurd policy. It's a terrible policy. And um, it shows up on Parag's first day. The thing that's worth noting about Twitter is, you know, one more we, thing. Alex. Yeah. Yeah. What what is the like steel man? Good. Why, why are they doing this policy? There's a lot of there. There are some reasons that you wouldn't want um, this stuff to happen. So, for instance, let's say you have a rape victim, um, and this is a real case. We have a rape victim, and their photo is put on Twitter, and they start getting harassed. You know that you know you can like put someone's phone number on. That's doxing against the right, private information. Right, but those are already against Twitter rules, right? Yeah, harassment. both the cases right. you just laid exactly. out are already yeah, against yeah. the rules. Yeah, well, but there was no there was no rule for for photos. Okay. And oh, images. Right. Yeah, fair enough. So, right. so that's the steel man argument for it. But again, like it's a ridiculous uh, 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 policy because it, it can, you know, phone number is very clear. That's a phone number. When it comes to putting images of, of private individuals, Sagar, you mentioned this week, what about George, the George Floyd situation? You know, and Twitter says, okay, it has to be reported by the first party, but we already know that that's not, uh, not happening. And, and, yep. you know, there, there's some amazing cases. I think the folks who were out in Charlottesville, um, for that white nationalist rally are like, oh, well, let's rally around this policy and get all the images that are can I, can of I, us can take, I taken there? off. This is important, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. Alex. The very first person I saw this enforced against yeah. was against somebody who is some Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. activist yeah. trying to expose mm -hmm. Andy Ngo for mm -hmm. hanging out with some um, mm -hmm. right wing. By the way, this is no judgment. I don't know if any of this is true. But anyway, yeah. his tweets on the subject were taken down as a result mm -hmm. of this policy, because the people that he was trying to connect Andy Ngo with, some Polish right-wing activists, they complained and they got yeah. this thing taken down. And right. this guy is a journalist, the person who did this. So I will say that like, oftentimes yeah. it is the woke folks that are pushing for these yeah. policies. I don't think that was the case here, um, but it, it is, you know, there is just elements of like the, the woke side of, um, of social media that want more stuff taken down. So right. like ban the Nazis is the, is the, um, you know, catch all for banning everybody they don't like. So, um, but here, I just want to make one point about this and it's yeah. sort of important, which is that it's Twitter is not a, a, traditionally not a centrally led organization. It's basically a bunch of different autonomous organizations, you know, under the banner of one company. So the no, the idea that this policy, you know, comes out on Prague's first day it really wasn't one of his initiatives. It was something that was percolating within the company for a while and then, you know, gets released on his first day. I think the problem is, 
and this is where it shows exactly the issue with what you're talking about, Sagar, is that he didn't have the wherewithal to either pause this and let him get let him get his sea legs before you know you have a big content moderation policy, especially at such a bad one like this, be released on his first day. Um, he didn't have the wherewithal to say, "Hey, maybe we should pause this before." Um, you know, and, and before people want to define me, because it is a defining moment. This is your first day, man. Mm-hmm. Um, and leadership is saying, how are people going to view the company underneath what I'm doing? Very poor leadership. Or at the very least, and this is what I called for this week, the man should have released a statement talking about what his view is on speech. Yes. He did nothing. Yeah. He said nothing. And he allowed his previous statements, which have been picked apart, um, you know, fairly so, to speak for him. Come on, man. You know, you you are the CTO of you were the CTO of the company. You weren't dealing with this stuff. If people are going to have faith in your leadership to to um, run what is an extremely political tech company, you need to come out in day one, or at least week one, and say this is my view on speech. There's been nothing of the case, and so it, it's a it's a massive stumble in week one. And we're not going to judge the guy completely based off of what he does in his first 24 hours. But man, it was not very reassuring. Man, Alex, when you uh, said it's not day one, I thought of the Peter Griffin Family Guy segment where he's like, ah, mm-hmm. he said it. He said it. Always day one. Yeah. Alex is incredible. <laughs> if you're listening to the audio version, Alex is really, really good book on how tech companies work. But And this is why we keep citing and bringing you on, because the thing we see, the biggest problem when it comes to tech reporting, especially when it's political people mm-hmm. looking at tech, is they don't understand how structural these mm-hmm. things are. So for me, when I look at Twitter, there's a lot of people on the right who are like, oh, like Twitter, like you said, like, oh, it's always like, woke well, people are doing all these things. It's like, it's actually much more complicated than that because that suggests there's a plan. That suggests mm-hmm. that there is this like top down, yeah. like woke censorship, which that's not actually it. What's actually happening is there's all these decentralized not particularly aligned, sometimes contradictory things that are trying to come together. So just how are they thinking through the challenges Sagar is articulating here? So given what you just said, I don't have confidence that this team is going to sit down in 2023 and come and look, they're never going to make everyone happy here. I'm not saying that I expect them to come out and say, hey, we're run by the First Amendment, this, 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 and that. They're not going to make anyone happy here. That's not the claim. But I don't think they're going to do anything. And that's what leads to New York Post, Hunter Biden style situations where they have no plan. Someone's on vacation. This team mm-hmm. says one thing. This team says. So can you just help us understand how these weird segments are going to like work over the next few years when it comes to these big questions? Yeah, Marshall. So I think you hit the nail on the head. It always comes down to culture. And um Del Harvey, who is the head of uh, trust and safety at Twitter, controversial, but at least had some vision about how the thing should work. She left too. So mm-hmm. she's gone. Jack's gone. And what do you have? It, it's uh, it's a mess. And Twitter's always a mess organizationally. I mean, it's sort of, I think Mark Zuckerberg had the best explanation of it where he said it was a clown car. They drove a clown car into a gold mine, which is <laughs> to, honestly the best description you can have of Twitter. Uh, but, uh, but I don't, I don't have a lot of faith that they're going to get this stuff right. And, and I, and I think that, um, the concerns that you and Sagar bring up about having a CTO take over a company that is a political animal, uh, are legitimate. I, I personally was astonished. They didn't put the head of product cave on Becky poor, uh, in, in charge of, of the thing. Um, you know, I had him on big technology podcast, a couple of, uh, months ago and, and he made a really great point, which is that Twitter like had a new head of product every year. 
and he stayed there for four years. And that's another reason, you know, along with the activist investors that you're starting to see them ship. So, um, so it's going to be, it's going to be challenging a couple of years for them. And I I do see things getting worse uh, at Twitter before they get better. Let me ask you this, Alex. I'm not a genius. It took me a single second to look at that policy. I was like, edge case, edge case, edge case, edge case. Mm -hmm. Is there nobody inside the room who is thinking about this or at least articulating it in the proper way? And I'm not just talking about this policy specifically. I mean, are they truly that clueless to the role that they play in the shape of the, not just American, global news media? And to not have the wherewithal to understand that and its impact has bit them in the ass so many times now that it's like, at what point do you wake up and say, we need to have a policy, consistency, <laughs> just think about this. Mm-hmm. for what, uh, Immediately, I was like, George Floyd, Philando Castile, Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, I, I named like six different ones. I'm like, which one stay? Oh, Amy Goodman. I'm like, which one stays up? Which one stays well, down? Well, it's you know? it's like, we know, the, yeah. we, well, but this is why it's no, toxic. No, by the way, I already we know. know the answer. Well, yeah, yeah. That, that's, like, that's, that's the problem. We know yeah. that these I'm things like, are all. No, but that's my <laughs> point. So it's like, okay, it's <laughs> like, so you're going to take down one video or you're going to keep this? I'm like, that's crazy. Uh, it is. <laughs> yeah. And Twitter is extremely so. So uh, I would say, you know, first of all, Twitter is an extremely reactive organization. There's no proactive planning there. And it, it, that did follow the personality of Jack Dorsey. I mean, the man wasn't exactly like a bold leader. He was kind of like, OK, chill, you know. Yeah. Um, so we'll see if that changes under Prague. I don't think it will, but we'll see. I mean, hold on. There were some amazing quotes. The Washington Post had this story about Prague that was unbelievable, um, where people were talking about his leadership. I just wrote about it. Uh, give me a second. I'm pull up the quotes. Sure. I mean, right. it was totally absurd what people were saying about this guy. I mean, talk about someone who, who you don't have faith in. Here are three quotes. He's one. He's the best choice among among a bunch of bad op- options. Two. Isn't the best with people. Three. I've seen worse men get ahead with less. I mean, come on. This was the guy that was universally approved by the board. You know, and, and we had this big push to get rid of Jack Dorsey, and this is the person. I know. I mean, I'm going to give him some time, but but it doesn't seem promising. And you know, here's I want to talk a little bit about um, what you said. What you know, your point, Sagar, about um, was there nobody in the room? And it almost feels like you you know, like you get to the end of a school year and you get a substitute teacher, and <laughs> and the kids know they kind of have to work on the on the schoolwork, but they don't really give a shit about you know what they're doing. And I kind of think that that's what it is. Um, where Jack is there 10% of the time. Del Harvey is left, head of trust and safety. And now get this, the head of communications at Twitter also left after, I don't know how long she was there, maybe, you know, four weeks, five weeks, you know, something like that. So think about this, absent CEO, you know, I guess head of trust and safety is gone. No head of comms. That's how something like this gets shipped out. I mean, but you would also think the people who are like shipping it probably should say, hey, can we check with the new CEO and and see if he wants, you know, us to put this out as it is. The fact that it wasn't reviewed or, you know, or, or wasn't intervened with before it went out to me is is totally absurd because it just gives ammo to everybody, you know, all your worst critics um, who, who want to see, you know, uh, their view of the world sort of, you know, uh, pushed forward with the policy. So. And I just want to hit something super important here. None of us, aside from the specific critique of the way the policies are implementing, our critique is really about the structure here. Mm-hmm. This isn't even really about the exact decision that was yeah. come to. It's like, whoa, like whether this is like left, right, center, neutral, 
this is not good. Um, I want to I want to <laughs> pivot us pivot us a bit to another uh, newsy tech thing. Um, the last thing I say on this is. I don't think anything we're saying should give anyone any confidence about a world where Donald Trump is more likely than not going to reenter the political arena in some mm-hmm. degree in 2023. I think that should be the number one thing that's on everybody's mind. But let's talk about Francis Haugen, the uh, Facebook whistleblower. Um, you had a tweet um, which tweeted out a political story where it was just noting she testified yesterday and nobody noticed this. And I, and I think it's really funny because we've also talked about this where you know, I praised Scott Galloway earlier. I'll dunk on Scott Galloway. There was an episode of Pivot recently mm-hmm. where he was like, I think Francis Haugen is going to get the Nobel Peace Prize. And I think that Francis Haugen is going to be Times Woman of the Year. And maybe Scott's just performing. He's been on the show. I like Scott. But the fact that there's an audience that is receptive to that idea mm-hmm. shows how completely this Facebook discourse has gone off the rails of what is actually happening in reality. So I'd just love to hear you reflect on basically the the rise and fall and irrelevance of Francis in this context. Yeah, I, there's there's so many different factors that might have led to it. Um, but yeah, people were telling me, oh, Alex, it's been a busy news week. Look at this new coronavirus variant. I'm like, no one gives a shit about this coronavirus variant. I mean, we, we're paying Thank attention, you. but it's not anything close to like what um, the original wave was or Delta. There's definitely room in the news cycle. So I wouldn't explain that um, as the reason why no one's paying attention to Francis anymore. Um, so... Uh, uh, okay, let me caveat before I explain why I think she's fallen out of the news cycle. Uh, I, I still think that there's a chance that some of the documents that she's put out there are going to actually lead to consequences. And like, you know, they're, they're with the SEC right now. Um, they're with Congress. Sometimes this takes a long time. Um, so I wouldn't write off what she's done completely, but it's definitely not a buzzy news story anymore. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, number one is that Facebook scandal has become so commonplace to the fact to the, to the point that it's now kind of boring um where it's like you know the one thing that people said after all these revelations came out we saw all the internal documents all the internal conversations people were just kind of like okay well we knew that and you know the reason was because you know we've had this reporting on this and scandal after scandal you know one after the other and basically there's no bad thing you could tell us about facebook anymore that would really make us you know pay attention for more than a day or two uh, because it's been, you know, that exposed in the media for the bad things it does. The other thing is that um, I, I think, you know, um, Haugen from a political, you know, perspective um, has been somewhat unconvincing. Um, you know, she's come out there with a handful of different policy solutions and tried to, you know, help guide the discussion of what should happen next to Facebook. And it doesn't seem like any of it will actually really f- um you know, improve, uh, we'll, we'll solve some of the problems that we're seeing with Facebook. A lot of people have said it's been a little too friendly to Facebook as a company, for instance, like, you know, having an agency that would help monitor Facebook's, you know, staff by former Facebook people, who does that help entrench? Typically it's Facebook. Um, and, and, you know, there's been some of the other stuff, um, you know, she's potentially undermined herself a little bit politically by allying with folks like Pierre Omidyar, um, that's the and, founder of eBay, who's, yes. a, who's a very, very big um, liberal mm-hmm. donor. Exactly. And, and you know, kind of, um, you know, uh, working with former Obama staffers, you know, if it was me, you know, I would potentially, even though this is a political thing, I would be as apolitical as possible um, and, and like, you know, align myself with a different PR firm, different, different backers. Right. But th- um, here's the problem. Mm-hmm. If you're apolitical, then there's no reason to do what she did. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, like at it's, the end it's, of the day, it's, whoa, no, whoa, it whoa, is whoa, a catch 22. Well, no, because 
Well, because once again, like there, there's there's an apolitical way mm-hmm. to say, look, I think Facebook's up to sketchy shit. I'm gonna re- I'm gonna be a whistleblower and release a bunch of documents. Like that 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 does not have to be poli- that, the framing and the that, what there has to be political. Well, what she the reason that she according to her the reason that mm-hmm. she came out was because she thought it was causing social strife, which is code for. And I don't think look. Uh, I've listened to a lot of the people who have interpreted her work and it seems overwhelmingly absent, like maybe one or two, it is being used to push obvious, like a censorship regime. And I think that that's what her ideal was. I mean, she's essentially what she's come out and said, Facebook does need to be regulated. They don't have the best interests, you know, for all of the maybe one or two stories that came out about Instagram and you know teen girls and internal studies, I'm not whitewashing. I'm not saying it isn't important, but that is not what, according to her, why she decided to leave the company and then leak all of these documents. So I just think that it was obviously an inherent political act from the very beginning uh, for the reason putting all of this stuff out. And it was done for a very specific reason. I mean, Alex, do you disagree? I, I'm curious. Like, that's my read of the situation. Maybe I'm just really cynical. Yeah, I haven't personally seen it be this move to censor more stuff. Um, that hasn't been my read on it. Hmm. Um, but I also like don't fully see um, a coherent, I would have loved to have seen like a coherent platform from her if she was going out and, you know, spe- she's almost kind of living in this weird middle where, you know, she's she's pointing out some of the problems she has some like half-baked solutions and she's speaking with Congress and the SEC and trying to get them to, you know, take it the rest of the way. And I don't think you can trust those, those entities. Let's, let's talk about these solutions mm-hmm. actually, because this is important. I've actually mm-hmm. been wanting to talk about this for a while. I yeah. heard uh, Tristan Harris on Joe Rogan's podcast. That was a great show. Um, it was a good show. Yeah. It was, and it was important because mm-hmm. it was a true clash of ideologies. Mm-hmm. Tristan is probably the best faith extension of Haugenism, if there is mm-hmm. to be such a thing, which is like you just algorithms. The term. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's like it's like, algor- <laughs> like algorithms are currently mm-hmm. bad, but they don't have to be bad. They can be good, um, and to be good, it requires the government and social stuff to like push things in that direction. What do you make of that reading of Haugen, which is that like? You know, algorithms, technology, all of that don't inherently have to result in social strife and social uh, lack of social cohesion. They can be re-engineered to a purpose. They can be pushed in the right direction by democracy, society, and all of that in the context of the current debate. Because, I mean, I know, you know, obviously I'm deeply skeptical of it because the people who most reacted to the Haugen news, Marshall, as you alluded to, are people who just want to screw over Facebook um, and are people who want to like take control of the algorithm and blame the algorithm specifically for social problems which basically have are way more downstream of like way bigger problems than anything to do with technology itself. Yeah, I, I think that you have to, um, I think that last point you made is is the most important, which is that People do want to just blame Facebook for everything in our society, but you really have to look at our institutions first. If people have no faith in Congress, if people have no faith in the media, if people have no faith in business, then what's going to happen when they talk about it? You're going to see the mess you see on Facebook, where it's just a, um, yeah. basically um, conspiracy theories thrive 
and um, and yeah, they're they're trying to undercut everything that these institutions are doing. The institutions have to clean it up themselves first before we can start talking about the problems that Facebook is doing. And, and I do think that um, Hauganism is a little bit idealistic, although I wouldn't discount it completely. Like one of the things that I've loved about her leaks is that we're starting to see some of the experiments that Facebook has done on its feed and on its users um, and, and getting a chance to dissect what they mean and then and then think about the solutions. So there's two that I wrote about in big technology. One is um, sort of counter to what she wants, um, which was funny that it was in her documents uh, that she leaked. I think that's good, actually, that all these got out there. So she's talking about how we should you know, potentially remove some Section 230 uh, protections, which uh, make the platforms not liable for stuff that are said by users on them um, when it comes specifically to what they recommend. And so essentially what it would be like is, you know, when Facebook, if there's content on Facebook, Facebook's not liable. Once Facebook recommends it to you, then it is liable. And Facebook actually did this experiment where they wrote, uh, where they, they um, for a percentage of users, took an unranked feed and showed it to them, basically saying our algorithm isn't really going to apply. But but what happened was um, with this unranked feed, more of a real-time feed, they had double the amount of integrity problems and it was a mess. It was flooded with groups content. And Facebook was like, it's going to be even worse. So we keep the algorithm in. And so, you know, basically um, pushing Facebook forward to an unranked feed with um, legislation to me is, um, is is obviously a bad outcome. Although there's arguments to be made that you could still do it, for instance, like you would maybe force Facebook to build the product from the bottom up again to try to make it happen. Uh, the other thing is the share button. So I've been a big proponent for rethinking the share button. I don't think that what's said on these platforms is the issue. I think you start to get into some problems when you have virality um, that just goes completely unchecked um, and and incentivizes outrage. Most important, I think the outrage stuff is to me, you know, the biggest issue. <laughs> I see Sagas rolling his eyes, but what, well, what, I, it's just yeah. like who decides. You don't like. Well, this is my. Well, this is the key thing, right? Right, like, and this is where. You're not gonna be happy, Sagar. They decide. Like that. That. That's mm-hmm. the, like, no, so, like I someone is. Like, so I'd rather and, and, it just be like this, like currently, instead of trying well, to well, regulate well, outrage. I mean, I, well, I just no, don't no, see no, how no, that no, works. no. But here's the key. Though. Here's the key thing. Alex gave a yeah. good example mm-hmm. of saying that people on the right dunk on, but actually, I think it's largely fine. Mm-hmm. Did you read this or not? That is a definition yeah. of something which is content neutral, dials down like outrage retweet. What? What's what? Aside from. And actually, what's your beef with that policy? Because that that is a good faith articulation of what rethinking sharing functions in neutral ways. And people on the right never say it's neutral. Mm-hmm. Body, body, body. But but what's what's your critique of that? I think COVID has just made me so incredibly blackpilled on the idea of neutrality, on the idea of any sort of good intention on when something is applied or not, on the ability to actually work the refs that I would rather that it just be left alone. I mean, at the current, for example, like on the, uh, have you actually read this button? It doesn't apply in all cases, um, in my experience. Um, in my experience, I don't retweet as nearly as much as I used to, but in the few cases that I do, um, I think it's usually applied in the COVID case as opposed to like some random New York Times article. Now, maybe you agree with that, but once again, 
That is an editorial judgment. So they're going to apply the, did you read this thing to every single thing that you retweet with a newspaper article? Okay, maybe. I would maybe support something like that. But as all three of us know, that's not actually going to happen because it would also decrease retweets, which would hurt their business. So then it becomes who puts it in one way and who uh, for the other. The same thing like on virality. And this is why I'm really skeptical, Alex. I mean, I don't think the three of us would be here at all without the ability to go viral. I owe a lot of my early career um, to going viral. Now, look, maybe uh, that's a selfish reason, but it didn't necessarily happen through outrage. It happened through wanting to contribute to the news cycle, wanting to produce something um, that I knew could be tangentially related to this that people might also find interesting. So there are also a lot of downstream effects um, towards trying to crush virality, to crush sharing, and all of that. I just continue to come back to this. People are really pissed off for a, a variety of reasons, and I don't think almost any of it has to do with social media. I think people are really pissed because the price, price of gas is high and because they still have to wear a mask whenever they get on an airplane or whatever, or if they don't see somebody wearing a mask, or because their kid... Uh, is like sick at school and gets pulled out for like 19 days because of whatever their COVID policy is. Like that's why you see the reflections in our tech. I just think that the effects of it are super marginal. Go ahead. But Mark. this is where I have to. This is where I have yeah. to push back though. Where look, Twitter, and once again, this is why Alex's frame is very really helpful. Van Althorst, you Alex, but Twitter has no control over anything you just like stated. Twitter has no control over Virginia public schools. Yeah. Twitter has. Basically, right. no one has control over fixing institutions. The only thing that Twitter can do and the only thing that Twitter will be held accountable for, because this is like I'm putting myself in like a Twitter perspective. The only thing Twitter will be held accountable is, is there disinformation happening on their platform? I agree well, with you. I agree. I, I, I agree with you that like going through the Hunter Biden story, especially when it's in the New York Post, is a mistake. But I do think Twitter does have to think about, let me put it this way. You cannot look at tech and virality and think that being neutral equals being neutral. That is a choice in of itself. Yes. You have to think about the way your algorithm is designed. And let's get real, man. Like, I get your point about, like, you do not personally wake up every day thinking, like, how can I, like, create outrage and, like, this, this or that. But, dude, the stuff that goes, like, the most viral from your stuff, from our stuff, like, there's a serious correlation with, like, not the hardest, most valuable news we're doing. But I'm, I'm just curious how you think about this, Alex. Well, I want to be a little more precise. I feel like, um, <laughs> Thank you, you know, I, I, <laughs> I talked about uh, outrage. Well, no, because I, I, on my statement, right, I talked about outrage and, and how I feel like that's an issue. And I think Sagar's right. There's lots of good forms of outrage. What I would like these platforms to be is more thoughtful and less emotional. I think that that's probably a good thing, especially given the way our society works and what happens when we spread stuff based off of motion. When we spread based off of motion, we spread misinformation. We start, we play, we spread stuff that exploits our identities. Um, and we spread, you know, the things that make us angriest, maybe not necessarily things we should be angriest about. And that's why I think that when you think about the share button, um, it, it enables all of that. And with, when you put some restrictions on the share buttons, it doesn't end virality. It just re reshapes it. Um, so, even if they took it away completely, you'd still be able to uh, spread things. You would just have to copy them and paste them and like maybe add your own take on it and put it under your own avatar. Whereas now you just hit retweet and next thing you know, someone's other, someone's, um, someone else's avatar is right there in front of everybody that follows you. Um, and you don't really have much accountability for, for sharing it, nor did you probably think too much about it before you pushed well, it. Well, why should you? I guess that's out. the question, right? Like why? I like retweeting people. It's fun. 
Sometimes I didn't think about it. Give credit to the person that did it. Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's a really good point. Um, and it's a able way to be able to give credit. Like, why should I have to do the, like the whole point of the internet is supposed to make it more frictionless, right? Whoa. Well, that's who decided. Yeah. Like, well, that's what, <laughs> that that was a that was a conjecture. Well, but and th- yeah. and this is this is actually a really relevant pivot because what's so interesting here is I think a good way of summing up all of these problems is we never actually came to a consensus on what the internet is. If we take like let's say a centralist centrist listener of the realignment, a right wing listener, a left wing listener, they would have three different answers to what you just said, Sugger. Like mm-hmm. a libertarian would say, yeah, like it is actually designed to be more frictionless. Or it's designed to like decentralize and take down all these big institutions, versus like a left person would have an entirely different take. So mm-hmm. how do we think about what this actually is and how do we actually as a society come to those consensuses because it doesn't seem like people are comfortable or happy with companies doing that though that's the actual default here i mean i think that i think the internet is best when it exposes you to new ideas that you never would have seen before by nature of the fact that it flattens our communication i think the internet is at is at its worst when you have um systems or bad actors that take advantage of its ability to expose you to those ideas and you know intentionally play the system to get bad stuff in front of you and so we talk about like the share button. And here's another one of Francis Hagen's uh, documents um, that was I found pretty interesting and, and also wrote up. So they have this thing called the deep reshare, which is, um, you know, when you not not when you share something, but when you share something that someone else has shared into your feed. So like two hops of a share. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have a deep reshare. So 38 percent of all views of misinformation take place after two reshares, according to Facebook. And then photos, the numbers are even higher, 65. And that, 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 the 30, 38% is links. For photos, it's 65% are of all photo misinformation, you know, take place after, after two reshares. Um, and, you know, when you have a page, um, you know, only 20% of their content is viewed at a, at a, re, at a deep reshare uh, of two or higher. So I think that, like, it tells us something. And I know, like, we could go on for another whole show about how Facebook classifies misinformation who decides that is an issue (laughs) i I, for sure i think directionally though though, those those numbers are telling um you know i think there are edge cases where you don't want facebook making decisions but directionally those those numbers tell you that like you can get exposed to lots of new interesting ideas at a depth of one reshare when someone when one of your friends sees something see something that's posted originally and shares it into your feed we could generally say that that's good but when some of you, one of your friends sees something that's shared into their feed by somebody else and then shares it into your feed, that's when we start getting into trouble. And personally, you know, I, I would, you know, much rather have some controls on, on this virality to make sure that I end up seeing stuff that's, you know, informative to me, you know, interesting, something that's a new idea, you know, potentially, you know, taking on the establishment, not against that. Um, but I think that we see the most constructive forms of shares happen after after maybe one reshare from an original source or from an original source itself, you know, versus something that's deep down on the virality chain. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying necessarily stop reshares after two, but I think that, and this is probably the good thing that Hawkins done is bring some of this research out into, you know, the public uh, forum so that we can actually look at what's happening and have conversations about what the best way to approach it is and, um, you know, whether we want to do anything at all, but at least we're having the conversation. 
I want to take us to the piece you released uh, on Thursday of last week, which is the internet was once flat, no longer. I'd love for you to explain like how the internet transforming from a big community into a variety of like smaller communities is really upended all of these things. Because my quick editorial here, and I think you agree with this, Sagar, is the thing that brings together everything we're talking about today, Francis Haugen, Jack's transition, the lack of like total like regulatory changes during the Biden administration's first year, only certainly going to go down from there is it seems like we're just at, we've just reached a dead end um, when it comes to a lot of these conversations and getting out of that impasse is going to require new conceptions of how the internet works, how these platforms works. Maybe that's why people are excited about web three, like whatever, but just explain your piece in the context of what I'm trying to get at here. Yeah. So um, I used to be a, uh, my first job as a reporter was as a um, ad trade reporter covering advertising technology for a magazine called Ad Age. And whenever we used to be on the phone with someone who wanted to share news with us, they'd be like, why am I going to give it to you? You're tiny. And our perspective was always like, listen, like the internet is one big newspaper that everybody reads. So if you give it to us, we're going to do a good job with this story. And it's going to be better than if you try to spray and pray and get a bunch of half-assed stories you know, across the web, uh, because eventually the news will find its audience. And that was in the early 2010s. I don't think that applies anymore. I think right now we're living in an internet that's not one big internet, but an internet of internet or a community of communities that often don't overlap. And I think what we've seen is a few things. One is an explosion of content. Where like before, like if there was a funny college humor video or there was a funny YouTube yeah, video, so viral. everyone's going to see Will it. Will Ferrell get it, yeah. um, ev- ev- get evicting the child. Everyone right. saw that back in hey, Where's my money? <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone remembers that. <laughs> exactly. But that doesn't, I just don't think that exists anymore because we just have so much more content on the internet coming from publications, passion publications, podcasts, brand publications, substacks, the whole thing. And so it's really tough to have something that resonates across the whole internet anymore. You know, once you have that, you also have uh, social media algorithms that have now really, you know, there used to be this concept of a filter bubble. There really wasn't this filter bubble um, when it was talked about back then. Um, but since then, you know, Twitter's algorithms only Wait, existed. You, could you explain that? A uh, filter like a, bubble is yeah. an algorithm. Basically, you know, you could live in a bubble that's filtered by algorithms where like you would only see things that, you know, appeal to your perspective and other people will see things that appeal to their perspective, whether you're, you know, liberal or conservative, libertarian, um, you know, woke, um, you know, you know, you have a certain interest in a sports team or something. You can literally live in an internet that's only um, showing you the stuff you want to see and, and the stuff, you know, in your community. And before that used to be overblown. But, um, you know, Twitter's algorithm, again, was only implemented in 2015. And we're six years in now. And that concept of the filter bubble really does exist. And it exists uh, even more so not, you know, when you combine the algorithm with the explosion of content, you can actually be like living in this bubble of content, not like the internet where you're going to see anything that's interesting. And then lastly, I think the rise of paywalls, which has really only happened in the past couple of years, means that an interesting idea on one publication won't necessarily spread to another publication. And so then therefore you could never be exposed to it. And there used to be a concept, you know, and it still exists, but in a much lesser format called aggregation, where like if the New York Times would have a story, every other publication would, you know, write three paragraphs and, you know, you could read it anywhere. But that really doesn't exist anymore because every place has a paywall, even Business Insider, which started its whole, you know, business yeah, on aggregation. Stupid, stupid slideshows. Yeah, exactly. Now they have a paywall. 
And so yeah. they don't give a shit about aggregating the New York Times anymore. They're, they're making money from their readers and they're actually producing amazing journalism now. I mean, they're an unbelievable story. In yeah. some ways, okay, not everywhere, you know. No, oh no, God. no, I, I, yeah, this isn't Dave. This yeah. isn't a Dave. Like, I, I wasn't I, I, I knew, I knew exactly this barstool this, thing. Yeah, now I like, stepped yeah. in it. Shit. Yeah, no, you, you got it. Yeah. You got it. There's a, it's a, it's a, it's a huge <laughs> company. There's, yeah. there's respect. I'm not going to find. They have yeah. done some good stories. Right. I'm not going to find a publication based off of one story. So, more what I was trying to wanted to get with you as we end here is, I remember the optimism of the '05 internet. And mm-hmm. that may sound really weird, um, maybe to people who are younger, but in the midst of the chaos of the Iraq war, there was also just this inevitable, awesome discovery of the anonymity of the internet on the boards. And if you didn't live through it, I actually feel bad for people who didn't, because mm. there was this recognition that like 4chan, you know, while also being terrible, could also like vote um, and rig a poll. Right. Remember Bodie McBoakface, stuff like yep. that. That was a little bit later on. But that, Kim Jong- that kind of was. Kim Jong-un was uh, every single year one of the uh, people of the year, Times right. People of the Year. Exactly. And it obviously like, it's like not Kim Jong-un, but it's just like showing you how ridiculous that fucking funny. thing is. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was really fun. It was like a real fun <laughs> aspect to the power of the anonymity <laughs> of the Internet. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I used to create a lot of rage comics um, <laughs> back in the day. Actually, a Reddit lot of car- Sager. Yeah. Reddit American Sager. I think I had over 100K, uh, 100K karma on Reddit back in the day. Anyway, more what I'm getting at is that there was a lot of fun in that type of internet, which just seems to have completely disappeared. Do you think that that's part of what is reflected in what you're talking about? I've just been thinking a lot about what the internet used to be and kind of what it is now. It just seems a lot more miserable these days. Yeah, it's sort of the the inevitable cycle of tech, where like tech is initially like sticking it to the man. You know, yeah. there are systems out there that are bullshit, run by bullshit people. <laughs> Let's destroy them, right? And that was what was amazing about the internet. Okay, that boat's now now named Bodie McBodie Face. Kim Jong-un is the person of the year. <laughs> but but what happens is with scale, these things eventually start to resemble the institutions they were trying to take down. And, you know, you end up in this cycle where they become, uh, yeah, they become just almost just as bad as the stuff they were trying to break. Um, because that's an inevitable feature of something that has scale and power is... You know, it, it resembles the scale and power that it was trying to to smash in the face before. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I do think that we're starting to see some of that, you know, be lost. And, and the idea that, like, the Internet isn't flat anymore. It's an Internet of Internets. Well, it's sort of like, well, the world wasn't really flat before. It was, you know, siloed and um, tough to break into and stuff didn't spread. And, you know, we're starting to see that again. I think this is great because this is a perfect pivot to our last bit here, which is there's certain parts of the audience who get mad when we talk about Web3 because they Mm -hmm. don't see it as political. But, and I think we notice this because we actually live in these technology spaces, whether or not NFTs, different DAOs, all these different things are the future, as people who deal in narratives in terms of us operating in the journalism space, there is very clearly a new narrative that's happening when it comes to like forward thinking tech cycles. So the same people who were, let's say, writing software is eating the world about how Uber and Airbnb were going to be a big deal in 2008, 2010, they are now saying like Web3 is the next big thing. And something that's just interesting to me is how 
we're resetting these narratives and how these narratives will go wrong in a different way. And I just want to give you a quick example of this, Alex, and just get your thought, because this is a space we're going to do more with, and I'm sure you will too as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the Constitution DAO episode talking about how, you know, the ownership and the blockchain and everything. And I heard a founder in this space talking about how, you know, in the future, we're going to see how Web3 and technology is going to make everything much more meritocratic. We're going to live in a world where like an eight-year-old will like get tasks on the blockchain and they're going to complete these tasks and they're going to get paid in Ethereum or something like that. And then once they get paid, they're going to have this permanent record and then they could like drop out of high school or they can go to skip college because they'll have this permanent record. And the thing I was thinking about, and that's why it's important to like stop these narratives before they go too far. This was a big mistake during, I think, the last era of journalism where I'm like, hey, here's another way of putting how shitty this is. Aside from just like eight-year-olds working jobs, because I don't think anyone would want that for their actual children. Imagine if the grades you got when you were in third grade were permanent and always just existing. No one actually wants that in that context. And that was, and this is, once again, a founder who's very well-funded, doing really interesting work. I think the product they're going to build is a good product in the same way that Airbnb was a good product. But I'm just interested, Alex, in, in closing here, how are you thinking of us resetting these new narratives? Because the thing a lot of these web people will say is, we made all these mistakes during Web 2. We gave too mm-hmm. much power to Mark Zuckerberg. So this time we're doing it differently. And I'm just already seeing, as someone who's interested in Web 3 and crypto, Sagar as well, those initial mistakes getting made here. So how do you think just about covering these spaces in a way that's not just Luddite? It's not just you saying, oh, like mm-hmm. Bitcoin's bullshit or blockchain is bullshit. I hate when people say that's what critics are doing because that's like disingenuous. But how do you just think about this? It's so challenging because there is so much hype and you see the problems in our society, problems like inequality, problems like um, centralization in, you know, centralization of power in the companies I cover, especially, you know, a lot of this is a reaction to the power of Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, what's left for everybody else. And you see Web3, which has the potential to decentralize, potential to bring everybody in uh, on the um, on the rewards uh, and, and not concentrate them in the hands of a few. And you want to believe in it. Um, I think the key is, uh, you know, whether you're writing about it or reading about it or listening to stuff about it is the show don't tell part, right? It, where it's so easy to get caught up in the vision. Um, but one of the drawbacks is we haven't seen a lot of stuff actually done in practice. I mean, even the Constitution Dow, right? They raised all that money. They didn't buy the Constitution. They got outbid. So, like, let's see By it Ken happen. <laughs> By Ken Griffin, right? By the way, I mean, and, and, and I don't know. He's such a troll. He's a troll. I love that. Honestly, movie. like, it's so funny. If I was a multi-billionaire, I would have done some of the same. And if you're a believer in, people. if you're yeah. a believer in the system, that money is well yeah. spent, right? Because <laughs> right. if the Constitution Dow bought the Constitution, which, by the way, doesn't give them the opportunity to amend it, it's just the document. But anyway, yeah. story for another time. Um, but you would have just seen more and more momentum build around these type of things, which could be scary for people who, you know, depend on the, on the system to, you know, prop them up, prop them up, prop their wealth. But I think ultimately, you know, the question that I hear smart people asking about this stuff is we see the vision, show me how you're implementing it in practice. What software has been built on the blockchain, on the blockchain, what, what actual practical applications have been built on web three, um, you know, that actually have something that can uh, be used by the masses. When we start to see that stuff, that's when it's time to get excited. I don't think there's been enough of it 
to really start jumping up and down on the table about this revolution, quote unquote, which is why I haven't yet, but I'm waiting for it. And maybe it's going to take like with Twitter. We knew Twitter. There was something amazing about Twitter the night that um, Osama bin Laden was killed and some oh. guy in Abbottabad was tweeting right. about it. And we found out before anybody else. And a quick thing on this. Yeah. I, what, what I think all of us are searching for is a Mark Zuckerberg separate mm-hmm. everything that happens. I remember where I was. Um, mm-hmm. When I first saw Facebook, I was at mm. debate camp. This person said, "Hey, here's this thing. It's like MySpace, <laughs> but it's not sketchy. Mm. Instant. No one had to yes. say, here's Mark Zuckerberg's vision for mm. how Web One was weak exactly, and Web exactly, Two. Yes. Web Two is gonna let you to <laughs> write and Web One. No, he yes. was just like, hey, like, what if this was good? And I'm like, cool. <laughs> that, that's what people are looking yes. for, and that's the founder mm-hmm. who I think is gonna make. That's that's the that's the non grifty non speculative billionaire, maybe even trillionaire who comes mm-hmm. from web three, they mm-hmm. will just show us something cool and we'll say awesome and do it. I've been thinking about the same thing. You know, I just listened to Kevin Systrom on Lex Friedman's podcast. It's actually pretty interesting to go back and think about, which is that Instagram look, founder, yeah, right? He, the founder of Instagram, which is like, look, you know, if you have to say it, then it's just not what it is. The iPhone, like as people even pointed out the time, 2007, there were a lot of touchscreen phones. They just like they were a piece of shit, right? They were mm-hmm. hard to use, didn't work properly, not intuitive. And then the iPhone just create boom, platform. That's what Ethereum and the blockchain don't have right now, which is that look, I bought my Ethereum domain and it cost me 300 fucking dollars in gas fees. Like, it was fine. I actually, funny story, I ended up buying some Ethereum like three years ago. <laughs> so it was actually worth a ton more. Um, <laughs> then I forgot about it completely until I logged in in order to buy this domain. But I was like, yeah, this just isn't it. I was like, you know, I had to figure, can I wallet? And then this, I was like, no, the ease of use here is a disaster. It's, I mean, mm-hmm. we're probably five years away from this becoming anything even remotely close to what a technology literate person will be able to use on the average. Mm-hmm. And then you extrapolate that out even more in terms of what the, you know, iPhone level type consumer will be able to use. So I've been thinking about it in that time scale, And I think you're putting it really well too which is like show us don't tell us you know mm-hmm. like if you just stop with the hype actually show us how it can actually be used i'm not hating on a lot of the stuff that i see out there i just don't see it's called like action it, i remember it, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's i was 14 just, years old and somebody was like yeah facebook's all about networks you can see other people in high school i was like oh cool use your high like, school you know, email address it. use your harvard like that was boom like, that's yeah. the, that's the social network moment and that's what i think we mm-hmm. in good faith actually want to see because I have not seen that many creators like us go all in on like Web3 stuff. Like we're not Mm -hmm. minting NFTs to sell to our audiences. We're not creating like a realignment or big technology media DAO. And the reason why basically no one is doing it is because we don't want to speculate. Like we know we could like Mm -hmm. make money. Like we could all make, like Sagar, if you and Crystal Mm -hmm. had minted an NFT when you'd launched Breaking Points, you guys could have made a lot of money. But like you don't, but because you're actually a good trustworthy person, you're not going to try to speculate. Like you can't, like the, the, the thing for us is like, if we're in Alex, and this is so important because I love mm-hmm. when you're talking about this with newsletters. This is a five year bet mm-hmm. what we are doing here. Mm-hmm. And if you grift too hard or you speculate too hard or you tell people there's value in this thing and you sell and pull the bag, we're screwed. And and and, and yeah. I, if anyone is in Web3 and they're working on this, we know you're listening right now. Please convince us that you have something that makes me say with the honesty and excitement that the person who said, hey, 
use your Lake Oswego High School email address to get into this Facebook. It's super chill. I want to be able to tell that to our audience members. I want us to have a conversion yeah, of that. I want us to not have to give this bull. Like you, and Alex, please reflect. I know I'm ranting here, mm-hmm. but I just get excited. Like I, if I hear one more Web3 person say, everyone is tired of the power that Mark Zuckerberg wields over these platforms. They want something new. I'm like, eh, that's like, that's an ideological point. That's not like a business argument. Sorry. Yeah, so I, have something. To, I have to jump, but let me just tell this story. And this yeah. is a good example. Cause I actually literally have to do a business, you know, and <laughs> all of this, which is that I was searching for a problem that I had. I wanted to launch the show breaking points with crystal and Marshall and I were talking about what's the best way to actually launch that show and to get premium subscriptions with the model. Marshall told me about Supercast. It was like, oh, you just put a link, mm-hmm. then it generates an, a premium feed, sends it to the people, takes a modest fee per subscriber, and also manages your email. I was like, oh, see, they just solved an actual problem for me, and I signed up for them, and we've had a very fortuitous business relationship. That's There's no problem being solved yet. Mm-hmm. like. Every time I see them come forward, I'm like, yeah, you can have a community. I'm like, I can do that already. Like, I already have one. You know, like, solve. you're not solving an actual problem for anything that I actually have right now. And until you do, it sounds cool. Definitely recognize that it's the next platform on which something will be built. But without that, you know, I just, I don't see any real practical application. Yeah, Alex, let's get your closing, let's get your closing thoughts. Show don't tell. It's an economy that the only thing matters is trust. And Web3 has the opportunity to build trust back into the economy. Don't fuck it up. Don't fuck it up. Show, don't tell. Build the applications that make this happen. And everybody will be thrilled to jump in. But we need to see it in action. Do not make my eight-year-old code all day. No one (laughs) wants that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Not interested. Alex, thank you so much for joining. This is really great. A lot of really great topics here. Um, Can you just shout out the newsletter, the book, the podcast, all the good stuff? My pleasure. Yeah. Um, thank you. First of all, uh, first thing I'll say is everybody appreciate you listening. Go rate realignment five stars. Now, uh, in terms of the stuff that I do, um, big technology podcast is the place, uh, that I direct folks to. We, uh, run it once a week, every Wednesday. It's a show with conversations with tech insiders and outside agitators. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and if you like it, um, you know, please subscribe. Otherwise I have a newsletter, big technology. It's on Substack. And the book is always day one. Good show, good show. All right, thanks, Ben. Thanks, Marshall. All right, it's a pleasure. Reminder, Substack, subscription, bookshop, book purchases, and of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. We'll see you next time.